Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hi there, Steve. Paul Richards is our guest for this show. And Ben, in talking about his band Heavy Load, he shares with us the most punk rock of punk rock stories. It had to be punk rock is my overarching feeling about the whole kind of conversation. And um, yeah, coming into it, I think, would it be fair to say that we should recommend that people go and check out the the, the Heavy Load film as soon as possible? I think absolutely, yeah. If if you have an opportunity and the time to, switch off this episode now, go and and watch the movie and come back to the episode afterwards because it's it's a phenomenal listen. And like you say, the whole thing screams punk rock, doesn't it? It does, and you're right to recommend the documentary and um that was where our sort of link with paul came from through um screening the film recently and um supporting some people around recording an interview and just itching to ask my own questions and and get involved in that interview and and then when paul said that he, you know he was up for coming on on the podcast it was really exciting because it the story of heavy load um is one is a story that's well that that he's told many times over the years. You know, the, I'm not I can't remember when the documentary came out. Now was it 2007 or something like that? And um, um, you know, so it's been around for a while, uh, but it still packs a real punch in so many different ways. And to have an opportunity to speak to him, and then for Paul to be, he's ju- he just is who he is, isn't he? And I and I love his honesty and his direct approach and his and his and his energy and enthusiasm for everything that he's done and what he continues to do. Um, yeah, go and watch the documentary because it is a really great companion piece to this interview, which I think unearths some new stuff as well. It does. And I think, I think what I felt after listening to the, you know, the first draft of this episode is that it's a real multi-layered story, isn't it? You've got at the heart of it or the beginning of it, you've got Paul's own journey through music. Then you've got the stuff around the inception of heavy load and then the sort of stories of all the characters and the individuals within that band that come out of that. And then this kind of um, underlying, underlining it all is Paul's kind of honesty and authenticity and preparedness to kind of challenge bullshit. You know, it mm. doesn't, it just, you know, it's all about not accepting the status quo, mm. you know, not accepting if something is, is not right. Um, and can be challenged, and the yeah the story that comes out of the um, the you know the work of Heavy Load, the work with that band is brilliant. Mm. It's uh, and you know and it's 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 very much paralleled with the kind of stuff that you've you've been doing in ter- in terms of your film work recently, isn't it? I I hadn't thought about that um, until you kind of mentioned it, but I had I have. I have had conversations with people where kind of referred to a tearing up of the rule book or a kind of, you know, thumbing your nose at convention um, in an attempt to do things differently for a, you know, to avoid bullshit and to circumnavigate the stacks of bullshit that exist in both the screen industries and the music (laughs) industries. And having been up close and personal with both of those things, there is so much bullshit and it's just yeah. so brilliantly encouraging and refreshing to speak with someone like Paul, who is, um, and when you hear about the experiences of the band and the completely uncynical um, frame that was around them, it's just, no, this is the band, this is how we want the band to be, and we're just going to follow our noses and, and, and have the experiences that we have, and there's no there's no cynical marketing. There's no attempt to, oh, no. Yeah, to yeah, do, not at all. No, to do the, the, the thing, the industry thing. And um, it's just, well, we weren't really even thinking about that stuff. We were just getting on with being the band. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, I and love it, that. And it starts from the very beginning of their journey, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it would be, you know, it was a band made up of three people with learning disabilities and two people who didn't have learning disabilities. And those two known musicians could have easily directed that project in any shape or form a way that they wanted to take it but they didn't they went with the kind of untrammeled unbridled joy of the musicianship of those 
three people with learning disabilities and they you know the story that comes out through this about their first kind of recording session and the authenticity of that and then there's just the, the decision just to kind of go with the capturing that live spirit is fantastic isn't it and I, I I'm deeply appreciative of people who can kind of take a step back and let their put their ego on hold and let other people's kind of um passion and experience come to the forefront and i think this is very much a story of that in total isn't it yeah you summed it up perfectly there it absolutely is and i don't think i don't am i right in saying you hadn't heard the demo that's at the end until the edit <laughs> came across i i hadn't mate. So what, that... did, what did you think when it came in because you had like the the kind of the, the listener experience with that well it's so it's cranked up so loud i don't know if you like if you put it in there as maybe, maybe. <laughs> but but it, but, it, uh-huh. but it yeah it captures everything that you want and you know and um like well like i said at the beginning it had to be punk rock and this is as punk as you like i'd you know i'd love i'd love other people who have been into punk or played punk to kind of to, to come across it and hear it because they'd just be drawn up by it immediately. Yeah. It's um and it and it 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 just parallels the Paul's story about how the recording came together, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and the the humor within Simon's uh Simon's presentation as a vocalist and his unique character in that, you know, the title of the song and the yeah, the kind of the multi-layered <laughs> attitude behind that yeah i i loved it so much yeah and i actually turned it up a little bit louder (laughs) it's the right reaction brilliant (laughs) uh yeah when the when the the that kind of uh pub table or dinner party conversation comes up about bands that you wish you'd seen you aren't around anymore heavy loader on that list for me Mm -hmm. i have uh, yeah i feel uh yeah, it's a shame to not be able to see them play. <laughs> I never got to see them play and that they're not around to play anymore because yeah. yeah, it must have been just fucking great. And there there are some there are some great stories within within this episode about the people within that band. Yep. I mean, one of the things that I loved about watching the movie, watching the the biopic is that it had lots of quite familiar kind of rock star tropes to it. You know, you know, the sort of pull and push of people's egos, the I'm leaving, I'm not leaving, you know, that kind of stuff. And I love the fact that that was in there, that, you know, the, the kind of dynamics and stuff that you might expect from any rock biopic just existed within that, within that story as well. And there's, uh, there's a brilliant story about, um, not being well you know that comes out about some of their tour experience about <laughs> you know completely not being risk averse <laughs> you know it's in a proper old school style but it's yeah uh, isn't it brilliant it is the most most brilliant listen yeah um and so we, we, i heartily recommend we both heartily endorse and recommend watching heavy load uh and also there's some links to the kind of legacy work and the the, the ongoing impact of of um heavy load the band um in the show notes around the but to stay up late campaign and the gig buddies and um i believe that sports buddies is, is also coming out uh is is in development at the moment as well so strong recommendations for all of that stuff and to get behind these initiatives because they are still very very needed and and very very important oh yeah totally mate yeah people if you don't if you don't have any direct experience of of uh, or knowledge of people with learning disabilities and the kind of barriers that um that people face in their lives in in leading you know the very very normal lives that you or i take for granted and that could be from very very small things locally or very big things nationally and this you know this the, the campaign we stay up late um, and gig buddies and sports buddies is all about challenging that from a kind of local to national level and people should go and go and read about it a little bit more broaden out your knowledge about it and and get behind it and support it whether that's you know fighting with your feet or or financially it be it's a, it's a worthy cause isn't it it's a worthy cause and a cracking listen so here is episode 47 of songs from a padded envelope with the very splendid paul richards I'm Paul Richards. Um, 
I was the bass player in, in the band Heavy Load and the song we're going to hear at the end is, is the first song that we ever wrote together as a band and it's called uh, Come and Get It Now, Frank Butcher. Fantastic. Well, th- th- thanks for coming on the show, Paul. It's, it's fair to say you've told the story of Heavy Load a fair few times and, uh, and I'd strongly en- encourage anyone who hasn't seen Jerry Rothwell, Rothwell's wonderful documentary to make a point of seeing it as soon as possible. We'll come on to the band a bit later on, of course, but can we start with what your first memories of music are? Oh, I, I guess it's, um, I, I, I mean, my mum was always musical, so it's probably just uh, having piano lessons at an early age and then playing in a brass band, uh, playing the cornet in a brass band. I think that those are my earliest musical memories. How did you come, how did you come to pick up the cornet then? It sounds like a bygone age, but I was, I was in the boys' brigade and they had a silver band, so it was just kind of a... A thing you did they had this massive silver band um this is quite i guess in the 1970s you know and uh yeah it's just something you did <laughs> yeah did you still play cool. um, um, i'm i'm kind of really rusty I've, I've sort of lost my lips it's one of them things you have to really I've, I, I then went on to play trumpet i played it in the the local youth orchestra and stuff so i, I came to sort of like uh guitar and bass at sort of later later age really but you played played the trumpet um did grade eight on the trumpet and stuff but it's one of them things where you have to you have to keep playing to keep your lips in uh and i've got rusty and the trumpet's got rusty as well <laughs> was it was it a kind of thing where it was an, it was an expectation from your mum that you would choose choose and play an instrument yeah 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 it really it really was yeah yeah there wasn't um wasn't much choice in that they weren't particularly pushy about it but it was just something i had to do my sister, she did the flute, which is a much more sensible instrument uh, to learn if you got to carry it to school. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's something to bear in mind. <laughs> did you did it, did you ever get any um, cornet or trumpet onto any heavy load stuff? Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> you never done no. it. No, I used a few of my keyboard skills, you know, and that like it was like a little bit of organ and stuff. But uh, not not um, they didn't. They never asked me to play my trumpet. No, funnily enough, I can't. Um, I can't imagine it would be a suggestion they would have gone with. Eh? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, there was uh, um, uh, uh, Aina in the in the Sugar Cubes. Uh, he used to have his little trumpet that he used to come out with every now and again, which he he couldn't play, uh, but he would come out and just blast on it on a few songs and little interludes and stuff. And I always really liked that because it was completely horrible. <laughs> Yes. And in fact, he was completely horrible, wasn't he? Standing next to you know singing with Bjork and having this incredible voice, and then his his brilliant grunting and trumpet playing next to him. Yeah, well, do you remember that interview we did with him? I mean, he's mad as a box of frogs, isn't he? Is he completely? Yeah. I mean, and fantastic with it. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. We we interviewed him about the Reading Festival. We made a documentary about uh, Reading 1989. Um, ben and I and a friend Nanish. And uh, when we interviewed Aina, he described, uh, what did he say? When I come to think about it now, how do I remember the Reading Festival? Like a small safari trip. (laughs) 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 Straight face, completely straight faced. That's how I remember it. (laughs) Brilliant. He, He did give a beautiful description of sitting in Iceland listening to John Peel, tuning into John Peel, didn't he? I don't know. I can't remember he described being in some little wooden shed or something, but it... No, he just... was in his car. He was, was that in right? His... In his car? Yeah, yeah. He was in his car on the cliff, uh, uh, on the top of a cliff with all the windows frosted over because it was in the middle of winter trying to get John Peel on the radio. Um, and that was his his thing that he did to, to be able to listen to it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What sort of what sort of music was being played in your house when you were growing up then, Paul? Well, it it would have been um, so, sort of classical music, really classical music, church music, that that kind of stuff. Not a lot of pop music. And then I think my sister, um, I remember my sister getting the uh, the the seven inch of Going Underground, which I then sort of nicked off her, and that was sort of like the start 
you know, of just kind of listening to different sort of music, but ne never came from my parents. And it's sort of like, I suppose that's affected me in the way that with my kids, I've just constantly forced them to listen to all sorts of stuff that I'm listening to. And they've, they've hated loads of it, but then it's, it's, it's rubbed off, you know, and uh, I had a really lovely moment. Um, my, my son uh, has been uh, doing an English degree and he had to record a, a, um, a radio show um, as part of, part of his assignment. Um, and, he, and he just decided to do, um, it was like, it's only a sort of 12 minute show, but it was about Ivor Cutler, his appreciation of Ivor Cutler. And that was all because as a, as, as a young kid, I used to force him to listen to Ivor Cutler records. Oh, good uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, he got a really good mark for it as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a great world to get into, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, go, uh, get, just uh, thinking about that first single that your sister brought, Going Underground, is a good one for mm. that seismic shift moment, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. A really good one. Yeah. Did you go, I mean, did you go on to sort of explore the rest of the jam stuff and, and was that a, a, a big moment for you? I, I, it, again, it wasn't, it probably wasn't until sort of um, later on in my teens that I started to kind of like explore different music yeah i was kind of just sort of leeching off what she was getting and then she'd get like those uh was it hits and the hits before before now came out there was like uh or it was like a fake hit uh, now sort of um thing you know i would just be sort of listening to that sort of stuff very mainstream what would you say was the first music that you kind of discovered for yourself that you said oh this is this is for me Oh yeah, that's um. I, I guess it was um. Like buying sounds uh in the eighties and stuff like that, and then like uh, discovering Pixies and Dinosaur Junior and those kind of bands. You know, that was the the sort of stuff I really. Because before that, I'd sort of experimented with metal and stuff like that, but not really. Um, got it. You know, that yeah. was the stuff I loved. Where, and whereabouts were you growing up? Were you in Brighton growing yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm Brighton born and bred. Yeah. So you'd have had, as you were growing up, access to gigs, you know, pretty easily as well. The, the music scene was, has always been fairly healthy with venues and stuff in Brighton. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's sort of like it's, they come and go. Um, and uh, it's sort of, I guess, quite like everywhere, quite perilous now. But I'm, I remember, like, I mean, we used to have a venue called the Richmond and... Um, was a little, little upstairs venue and I'd heard this band on the radio I thought they sounded quite good so I went down there with a mate to watch them and uh it was it was Radiohead the week before uh Pablo Honey came out you know and just just in this little upstairs pub that was a good memory yeah yeah I remember seeing Radiohead this uh, uh, and uh, this is a nice a nice segue Ben you're gonna you're gonna like this but I saw them support Cardiacs in London <laughs> Amazing. Was, uh, third on the bill yeah, okay. <laughs> driven from lower stuff to see cardiacs and and yeah that wow yeah is that was... when tom york still had like his mop hairdo oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. like proper proper early early uh incarnation yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't really remember it I, I remember seeing them and seeing the name and thinking it was quite a cool name uh but yeah and by the time you're going out and seeing radiohead are you have you picked up the guitar already paul and are you playing in a band yeah, yeah. So I was with some mates. Uh, yeah, we we we. Uh, this, it was one of those bands where they'd like uh, you know a few a few of it. I guess me and the drummer, um, and then the singer, and then we we had a few different bass players. Um, but yeah, just kind of playing indie rock. Um, it got it, it was kind of. I think I think we. I mean, we never got signed or anything. I think we thought we got really good. We used to rehearse two or three times a week. And then I guess like a lot of bands, it just gets far too intense, you know, and you start arguing over whether that note should be in that particular place. And you, you start to forget why you did this in the first place, which was the joy of making music together. Um, but, but yeah, that was the, the kind of stuff we were doing. We, we played around the South Coast, up in London, um, that sort of thing. What was your band called? Oh well, we were we started off. We were called Lost in Space. We just had a, a, a catalogue of pretty bad names. I think we ended up as uh, Karma Loca. I think I think we thought that sounded a little bit a little bit more psychedelic at, at the end. But we, uh, yeah, 
no uh it was kind of like heavy load was sort of was a sort of real light bulb moment for me because i was in that band at the same time that heavy load started and it was just this sort of uh going in and playing unhinged music with these guys and just having a real laugh um at the same time was sort of like that that moment that reconnected me back with with the joy of just making music with people um, I'm still mates with my old band, you know, we still, we've actually never officially broken up, you know, we just, we just meet up for a beer every, every year and, you know, talk about the old times, but, um, but heavy load was a real sort of moment for me. Lots of people on the podcast have kind of referenced that first moment where they, you know, played with another musician and felt themselves kind of locking in together. Can you remember that for yourself? <clears throat> yeah, well, I mean, the, the the funny thing is like locking in is a sort of a funny word to use with heavy load because like our whole sort of sound was about being un completely unhinged but it was kind of locking into a completely different style of drumming so our, our our drummer michael had down syndrome and he he used to kind of have this way of drumming where he'd get into a really sort of like solid groove uh and he'd all be be rocking along and then he'd throw in a, a, a some sort of roll on the toms or the cymbals and the whole thing would just fall apart and and then it was sort of a, 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 an uphill battle to try and get back in into something and um to start with we thought wow, this, this isn't this isn't how bands are you know it's not that's not the way things are done and then we realized that was our sound and we worked with what we got and then people who used to watch us live used to say that was the most exciting thing about us because they were always wondering how we were going to get out of that one you know that <laughs> we we got ourselves into this new mess how are we going to get out of that that one and find something else you know and, and I think we only ever aborted a song once you know somehow we always managed to to do that so it was really kind of like learning this very different way of playing thanks to Michael our drummer yeah, yeah he's amazing He's yeah. amazing, and and that the the atmosphere of um, or the vibe of those songs when they start, it is like you strap in. Here we go again, and it, that the energy of it is amazing. How? What was that process like for you? Talking about playing a lot with Karma Loka and the the other incarnations of that band and doing lots of playing, and I'm guessing that you you'd gone in the studio and gone through that the process of like conventional recording and things. Yeah. Um, how easy was it for you to sort of shake? that off um to to sort of work with heavy load yeah well we 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 had a first like recording session together uh in this little uh recording studio up off st james's street in brighton and it was a really small place uh, and so it was kind of we went in and did that sort of conventional uh thing um of, of kind of try, trying to record everybody separately and get it all very good good quality and we got the tape <laughs> it just sounded shit you know mm. it didn't sound like us at all so what we did was we we just saved up money for a few years and then we we had enough to go into uh the leveler studio in brighton metway uh which has got this really lovely li live room with daylight um and that and we said to the engineer uh jake in there I said, we said, oh, we just, we just, we don't want, we don't want to head, wear headphones. It's all about like eye contact with us. So we just, just leave the PA on, just do, just record us like it's a practice session. We're all going to be in together. We just want the PA on and just, we're just going to go for it. And, and he said, that's, that's, that's really not going to work. You're going to, it's, it's not going to sound good. There's going to be all sorts of audio bleed and this, that, and the other, all these technicalities. And we went, look, Jake, you know, when we start playing, I think you will understand that that's the least of our worries, you know, and <laughs> he he, to he totally got it. And, and uh, he used to love us coming in because because we used to record in a completely different way uh, to all of the other bands that that were, that were going in, you know, and they, they'd get I think they'd get people like the Bad Seeds and stuff like that, doing demos of, of stuff and and things like that. Yeah. But we were sort of like this breath of fresh air going in and just 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 being quite crazy and we were talking about the kind of spirit of the band before you came on the call and about you know um watching the film and there is it is that kind of unfettered joy in the fact that 
the songs are on the verge of falling apart at any any minute but it totally captures that sort of punk spirit doesn't it yeah i mean it's kind of uh in, in a way it was kind of like where uh, uh kind of my my professional approach to working with people learning disabilities is is about working with with um people where they are supporting them where they what they are and not not like looking at their deficits but actually so like, let's work with what we've got and as a band we were in the same um way as well you know like we 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 couldn't play in a conventional way um uh, our singer couldn't remember the words to um all of the songs very well and would just kind of make stuff up sometimes simon would sing the words to a different song to the one that we were singing at the time but you know we just embraced that uh you know it's kind of like uh uh, in social care, they'd call that an, that an assets-based approach, you know, but it's punk, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sort of skipping ahead a little bit, but just thinking about the, uh, you were talking about uh, the like working with people within sort of like a service setting, if you like, and, and, and thinking about the band. I mean, there are a lot, of, there's a lot of achievements with, heavy load you, you achieved a great deal more than a lot of bands was there ever a um a time where you considered um just doing the band full time and and it's like setting aside all the other stuff that was going on and and, and going yeah pro, was well, it pro? well there was kind of i don't think we were ever sort of like uh clued up enough to even start thinking about that so we were were just me and Mick were just holding down day jobs and then doing this stuff in our spare time um it was and then and then the film came along it was really knackering actually you know like you know um going off and doing stuff but I did manage to sort of like uh, start um getting like doing doing the band stuff in some of my work hours and my CEO, where I used to work, she she knew what I was up to and would turn a blind eye because she knew that there was like so much value in it. Um, and I'm still good friends with her to this day, you know. So uh, I sort of thank, really thank her a lot for uh, for kind of encouraging me in in that way and not making it a a difficult thing. But yeah, you're right. We, I mean, when I look back, some of the stuff we did was was just. Um, it was just crazy, really. I, I really can't believe some of the things we, we managed to get up to. Can you tell us about the um, the, the the New York trip, Paul? Yeah. So when um, when our movie came out, it was premiered at South by Southwest, and and South by Southwest have this um, when, when they announce you know what films are going to be programmed, there was something like a six week window. You know, it's, it's, they tell you almost like in February. That your films coming out in mid-March so there was this opportunity to real brief opportunity to try and get the band to go to Austin to South by Southwest but we, we couldn't we couldn't get a gig there or anything and so it basically was just going to be spending thousands of pounds to get the band to go to a cinema in in Texas and watch the film you know and it seemed like a, a, a kind of not not the right thing to do but the film was coming out on uh, us tv in the june of that year so uh, jerry um me and jerry just sort of made a pact so like it's not we're not going to get them get, get us to to austin but let's get us to new york in june and um so we just kind of made that pact and and i i just had this sort of silly idea really that i i would just try and organize a gig in a in a venue in a city in a country i'd never been to before um without knowing anything was and just it's just through the beauty of google and emails and found this venue called arlene's grocery on the lower east side um really nice little venue um yeah we just we booked some other back we we found the band i think they were called oh i can't remember what they were called now two uh, two wheel city they were like a hip hop band with these guys in wheelchairs, um, and so uh, that kind of and that was that was a learning curve. You know, I, I didn't realise like we'd we'd never had like a 
hip hop band um, support us before, and I nearly had to sort of rip the microphones out of their hands and tell them to get off off the stage because they were just they were just going on and on and on and on you know and I was looking at the clock thinking we're going to get about 10 minutes here yeah but that was that was a great night you know and a really you know again you know amazing thing to think we would manage to kind of do this gig in in uh, New York how long did you stay in 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 New York for to for, for the gig um I think we were there about five days so we had quite a quite a good look around um you know uh good explorer of the city fantastic yeah fantastic really great sort of place i've not been back but it's sort of place i'd love to go back to um one day when it's when it's safe trump's out the way now so so you sort of think it's safe but then we've got this like virus (laughs) going around so yeah when you when you take yourself back and think about you starting out as a as a young guy playing music and the kind of aspirations you had what um all the stuff that you achieved with heavy load did that tick all the boxes that you had for the you know started out i i think it probably did really i mean i remember like uh, as a as a kind of young yeah, like was started picking up guitar. I just dreamed of being in a band. Had no um, ambitions at all with that. And in a way, like in in the film, um, I can't remember if we talk about it. But the genesis of Heavy Load was that G- Jimmy um, used to just play his guitar in his bedroom, and his support worker said to him, "Do you want to do anything?" And he said, "I want to be in a band." So in a sense, we you know both had the same ambition and no no. no big vision but then heavy load you know uh enabled me to play uh yeah in new york we 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 played a couple of glastonbury's and and that ticked a box for me you know to be able to stand on the stage and and just um say hello glastonbury you know that's kind of like that ticks a very childish box for me you know but i've done it um you know and then and then doing then then these kind of other opportunities arose. So, um, I we've been asked to play at a, a festival in Germany, um, and then uh, there was at the same time somebody was saying, "Could we play at something in Aarhus in Denmark?" Um, and then I I knew this guy in Denmark as well. He was doing a similar thing with to to us. He had sort of like a um, garage garage punk band um they, they were named they're called the john deere band so they like they they all they lived and worked on a farm and loved tractors so it's all these nice connections actually because jim's favorite brand of tractor was a john deere you know so like it's all these really weird great, things going like but anyway um I, I just looked on the map and thought oh well you know wolfsburg isn't that far from um copenhagen you know on the map and then um <laughs> and then Aarhus. so we went on this crazy um road trip in our van um played in wolfsburg then we went up to play at this sort of um squat with all these anarchists in copenhagen um and then the next day on on onto Aarhus, you know and kind of th- i'm not sure quite you know how how i uh I don't really know what I was thinking of. It was quite a lot of organising and stuff. It was almost like these opportunities arise. You just kind of push, push the barriers, you know, and and see what happens. And then this, I had this phone call one day from this TV company. Said, "Oh, we're we're producing this um, tra- drama series on Channel Four called Cast Offs. You know, and we want to talk to you about writing the theme tune." So, so I met with them, and she said, "What we need is uh, like." noise anarchy the sort of music that you would not normally hear on the on the tv and and i just said oh yeah yeah we can do that for you and um, she said i love i love your can do attitude and i said well you just described what we can do you know right so um i'm just saying yes because that's that's what we can do so they they paid us like 1500 quid for 19 seconds of noise so we we just bashed that out as quickly as we could in the studio, and then Brilliant. used the, the rest of the money to make a new album. <laughs> <laughs> That's just bloody great, isn't it? That's great. Um, 
God, so so many questions from the stuff that you've just said. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm interested in the gig in the in the squat, mm. uh, and 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 just sort of paint, painting that picture a little bit, and but with it, but alongside that, the thing that's kind of, and forgive me for asking this question, but I'm I'm thinking about if if that was something that were that people were going to embark upon doing now, if you were going to do that now, do you think you'd go at it in the same way? Uh, and do you think you'd be allowed to go at it in the same way, thinking about what your, ma- you know, you're the manager that you spoke about before? Yeah, um, I'm thinking of words like risk assessment. I'm thinking <laughs> of words like you know, duty of care, and I'm th- all that stuff that gets chucked in the way, and and uh, and and risk, and all that stuff that gets chucked in the way of people being able to do what they want to do. Yeah. Well, this, I mean, my, my connection in Copenhagen, you know, I sort of met him through, he'd seen the film and we just connected because we were doing the same sort of things in the bands and uh, used to send emails to each other and that. And um, so I kind of, I kind of trusted him. Um, so I thought he said, yeah, I've, I've booked you at this place. Uh, so I think if I'd have known what it was going to be like, I would have thought, "Oh no, I'm going to get into trouble for this." There were lit, there were fires on the in the. It was like in this old factory, so they just um, lit fires in the middle of the floor to keep warm, and there was all electric wires hanging out of the ceiling, and things like that. It, it was totally unsafe, um, but the people in there were, were just beautiful. They completely got what we were doing. You know, this kind of like it's sort of just a bunch of sort of anarchists uh who completely got what we were doing and we played with this other band the john john deere band i think i don't know i i was i mean driving after, after that gig we then had to drive four hours to our accommodation that's the tiredest i've ever been and i i kind of think that that wasn't the most sensible thing to do got to our accommodation which is in the middle of nowhere and this guy Pedro had said, "Yeah, it's all right. I've got your accommodation and that." And we got there, and it was it was a shed with just blankets <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> yeah, and we were all so tired, we just still slept. And again, you know, like I, I think there was—I don't know if there's rules now, but there was kind of well, if I if I'd have said to the support provider, "Look, yeah, it's all right. We're going to sleep in a shed. We're going to sleep in a shed." <laughs> Yeah, they they would have told me that's not happening. So you know, um, so sometimes yeah, we 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 got through things uh, safely. Um, you know, and uh, I think when when we were on the ferry on the way home, we were on like one of those lorry ferries back um, across the North Sea and just sleeping in a proper bed. We just felt like kings. We were so you know. One one of you know one of the joys of doing those sort of um, European tours and in the way that you've described is about the social connections, isn't it, that you make with people? Yeah. What was what was the experience like for the for the all the rest of the band in terms of those making those connections? Yeah. Well, again, like you know, uh, in in terms of like, so you might think like sleeping in a shed is is quite grim for the night. But I woke up in the morning, went outside. Jimmy was already up. Uh, he was stood there worshipping this tractor that was outside the front door which is a john deere tractor his favorite brand you know and he he that was he, it was in heaven it was like heaven for him and for the rest of the band yeah we met all sorts of um lovely people there's people i'm still in touch with to this day um michael uh um he he, he he'd never had to buy a drink and things like that i think he loved that he was he was always famously, you know, um, deep pockets and short arms type person. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he um, he he loved that. Um, uh, Simon was the sort of person who would um, uh, get a room talking wherever he went. You know, he was he was one of those one of those people. He had a rare skill. Uh, you could walk into a place you didn't didn't know anyone, and he would just be on first name terms with people. We just got to people say, I'm Simon, what's your name? And and then he'd say something gloriously rude to them, <laughs> but in such a way that it was, um, you know, it was heartwarming. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and same with Mick. Yeah, we just, we made lots of friends uh, through doing that. 
Who's nudging into the into the shop uh, there? This is this is Nob. Uh, oh, he's gone now. That is, this is Nobby, the dog. All right, Nobby. Oh, yeah, yeah, there he is. He's a handsome <laughs> fella. <laughs> with the with the release of the film and the kind of the the profile of the band uh, kind of elevating a little bit because of that, did you get approached by like people like management or or, or people wanting to kind of jump on board or help or? Well, that's the funny thing. We didn't really. We kind of stayed quite under the radar. Um, we never, you know, again, like in, in the sort of more like arts field of things, you think, well, we could could have applied for funding for things and, and that. But we we never did. We 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 just used any money that we earned, put it into our our savings for our next record or our next road trip or whatever. And uh never had anyone telling us what to do or or how to do it i i remember um so yeah we never had anyone sort of try to um think how they could make more of us uh really um as you know i mean maybe maybe we could have made a lot more more of it um but we were sort of happy doing our thing and i think as well it was that practical thing of like we've got day jobs and we've got young families and things like that um how you know how can we possibly sort of take such a risky step with things it's very unusual for the music industry not to see to see and try and see yeah. an opportunity mm. like the one that heavy load presented that's surprising and like being in the offices of a major label you know with the the, the kylie uh, conversation that's in the film and and did, did they did those people do anything more talk to you any more other than that conversation about the, the Kylie song no no so it was just that was just uh we just had that um that conversation that uh, some really posh biscuits and that was the uh, end <laughs> yeah. of the end yeah. of it <laughs> oh it's a bullet yeah. dodged I would say <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. yeah I did have um this wasn't the record company did have this excruciating um email once from a, a local authority who who wanted to to write a, an anti-hate crime song and and they said so we've been having a little chat around the office and we've got you some um lyrics and so this is what we'd like you to, to do <laughs> oh, so uh so uh we couldn't do it but i thought well we were going into the studio anyway i said we'll, we'll see what we can do and, and i emailed back and i said right we've written you a song but i'm not sure you're going to be able to use it you might well. <laughs> and um we just it was our anti-hate crime song we just called it i i hate it when you call me names you're an asshole <laughs> <That's great. laughs> brilliant yeah <laughs> uh, i was um i was telling, telling steve i was listening to shut up bollocks um, <laughs> yeah. Before, but can you tell us about the making of that tune? Yeah, it was shut your bollocks. Was um, we? It, it's kind of sort of tinged with sadness. That was because it's uh, so a Mick in the film. Mick moves to to France, and then in the end, uh, in 2012, we decided to call it a day because uh, it was Michael actually, the drummer. He phoned me up one day and he said, "Paul, I'm 50. It's time to retire," and um, and it, and it and he'd been talking about leaving the band for ages because he wanted to be the front man you know and he was creating all this sort of like friction but that day it felt very different and we'd we'd um we'd we'd been offered uh like our last gig was in trafalgar square as part of the paralympics so that was a brilliant way to go out but anyway a few years later um so when was it 2017 i think um we'd arranged to get back together and go into the studio and uh, and have a little blast together. And um, it was I, I, there was this really sad moment when um, Jim just didn't turn up, and it turned out his sport worker had forgotten to write it in the diary, you know. And it's just one of them things. It was a, it was a moment, a re it could have been a really magical moment, and it was such a shame. I I, I borrowed a portable studio for um, a mate and went round his house a few weeks later to to make sure he was on the track but um we did that and then like simon died the next year so there was no opportunity ever for us to sort of do it again but shut your bollocks was really 
we were furious that that Jim hadn't been able to come, and it was kind of like uh shut your bollocks and give a shit about me it was just sort of us being angry uh really um and just doing the heavy load thing and simon's simon's favorite word ever was was bollocks and um we we had a wonderful tribute night to him uh at the green door store in brighton the next year um we, we were going to get together and do a sort of oh no it was that year 2018 i think um but we were, we were gonna we'd had this gig arranged where we were gonna sort of reform um, and do a gig at the Green Door, um, and so sadly Simon died a few months before that. But we decided to go for it, and we did this night of um, live heavy load karaoke. So we the, the microphone space was empty, and we just we just asked our fans just to come up and sing a song, you know. And the beauty of of heavy load is if, if you can't remember the lyrics you just use swear words so and we the green door was packed and it was one of those nights he sort of it gives me sort of tingly feelings just remembering it because the, the room was just so full of love and community and that spirit of punk and and um and laughter and stuff and you know my, my sons came up on stage and, and sang one one song with us uh farty animals and um yeah, it was it was just a wonderful tribute uh, to Simon, and and also that that night was called Total Bollocks um, in tribute to Simon. And then also when it was his funeral, his mum asked me to uh, lead a toast at the pub, you know. And, and there was his family, there was his dear old auntie Marjorie, who you know she's quite, a, you know, sort of prim and proper person. And but I said to his mum, I said, well, what would you like me to say? Uh, as a toast you know to simon and uh she said i think we should all just say bollocks so there's auntie marjorie and everybody all his family all shouted bollocks uh in his in his memory so yeah shut your bollocks seemed to be like a a good a good final song for us to record really and uh, a lasting memory of our friend yeah fantastic <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah, uh, just in your your description of that celebration uh, of him, it, it uh, gave me goosebumps. So I can't oh. imagine what it's like to to play. That's a, a, a brilliant kind of well, part of the a brilliant legacy of of heavy load. Um, and you're talking um, uh, um, it within that about uh, the support worker for getting to put it in the diary. So it feels like that's a, it's a good opportunity to talk about stay up late campaign um if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about that for those people that maybe don't know what that is um because i think it's worth um talking about for a little bit yeah thanks yeah well it was it, it, again from our experiences we were playing gigs um uh at uh, disability arts nights around the country and um always at nine o'clock you see the same thing happen um, half the audience would leave. A lot of the audience would be people with learning disabilities or other disabilities. And they'd leave at nine o'clock just before we got on stage. And um, I always say it was kind of like we never, ever considered that 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 might be to do with the fact that they didn't like our music and were getting out before we unleashed our sort of wall of noise and started swearing at everybody. Um we always assumed that there was a fundamental flaw in the way social care was organised, and, um, and and it turned out we were right. You know, when the when the film came out, that 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 message was in there. But really, stay up late was about saying, look, people learning disabilities have every right to go out and uh, have good social lives, see bands, and stay to the end of the night, um, and not be taken home early because their support workers can't work beyond nine or ten o'clock at night and it was this endemic problem and it was it was kind of in in government policy that people should be living lives of their choice and things like that but i think us calling it stay up late kind of helped hit the nail on the head really this is this is about the the right right to do that but there was this one night and there's a there's a scene in the film where we playing batman in this pub playing the Batman theme. And that that gig was a massive deal for us because it was the first time we'd ever played to uh, uh, a predominantly non-disabled audience. It was in this pretty rough pub uh, in in Seaford in East Sussex. And uh, 
we were we were really nervous about it actually we didn't know how we were going to go down and when we started with batman i think you know their their faces like there's people with sort of open mouths and confusion and things like that um but by the time it got to the end of the set it was it was something like from a cheesy hollywood film everybody was clapping and dancing and singing and uh simon had just got them eaten out of his hands and and afterwards we um we were having our sort of post gig pint with michael chatting about what a great night it was and then his support worker came up and said, oh, drink up, Michael, it's time to go home. And he had half a pint left. And sort of for the sake of probably what was half an hour's worth of drink for him or what, you know, maybe not even that. It completely took the shine off the night. But that was the moment we snapped and said, right, we need to do something about this. And um, and it was the next day sort of stuck in traffic at a tra- in um i was thinking i've got to do something about this uh i'm not sure what and i had this kind of slow moment of, like realization that oh we've got a film crew following us around at the moment so if we made a campaign it could get in the film and then we'd get the message out to a much wider audience so i got to work rang jerry so i've got this idea you know and you know the rest is sort of history uh re- really but it was it was it was not just affecting our fans it was affecting members of the bands our mates you know and um that's stay up late the the call is to you know is is really simple you know um people should be allowed to have have the social life that they choose don't care if people stay up late or go to bed early it's it's about them making that decision and not having support workers dictating to them and how's that manifested itself then, Paul? How does how does it how have you managed to uh, to sort of change stuff, enact stuff? Yeah, we've I mean we've had some sort of good successes. We've had support providers say we've we've uh, we've kind of seen what you've said and realised that you know we we've got to change things. Um, we've uh, I mean COVID helped us in a in a funny old way because. We, we were building this network of uh, self-advocates with learning disabilities who were going to be our campaigners. And we we kind of had a day in London, in Brighton uh, last January. And but then COVID forced us to just start meeting this group fortnightly over Zoom. And now there's 40 people around the country all all campaigning and, and doing stuff in the name of it locally as well. Um, and we're also in the middle of a uh, campaign at the moment of um, we've written to every local authority in the country and sort of said, look, we, you know, uh, we, we want to have this. Uh, we, we want you to sort of commission services where there's no bedtimes. There's no bedtimes written into the contracts. Uh, and we've had a really great response so far. So we're in the middle of sort of going through all of those letters, their responses and saying what they're doing and. And that so there's there, there is a real desire actually a sort of like a, a local authority level uh, to do things uh, and in some support providers as well but the thing is as well I think it's it also comes down to local leadership you know if if, if a manager in a supported living place thinks it's a great idea it will happen uh, as we knew in the band we had like a singer who's support service completely embraced everything we did in the band and a drummer whose support service didn't really um and both getting support from the same organization but two different managers oh really yeah ben how's that how's that landing with you as somebody who is a manager of a supported living it totally hits the spot for me i mean i've always worked from that direction anyway mate you know that you know yeah it, it people leave the lives they want to lead so if someone says they want to do something you are going to find a way a work around to make it happen and if you've got good people around you then they'll be they'll also be along for the ride i think you know it, it like you say it's about it's it's about change on all sorts of levels isn't it whether that's national local or, or down to one person or two yeah. people together making some making a change and making something happen so Ben, have you written any uh, risk assessments on playing in squats with with fires in the pool? Uh, I can think of some stories uh, that <laughs> fit into that category. <laughs> 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 
so part of the stay up late is about the gig buddies kind of system then yeah on, then. can you can you think about a sort of a personal illustration that says that would you know detail to the listener why gig buddies works yeah i mean it's it, again the thing about gig buddies is it's about people being able to say what their gig is so um it started off from a musical thing you know like us wanting to support people to uh go to mainstream bands um see the music they liked and soon people with learned disabilities were saying i don't really like bands but you know they, they wanted to go to um a, a gay bar or football match or, or or do anything so that's the first thing is about trying to find out what someone's gig is and then matching them up with a volunteer who has the same interest and then they just go off and do mainstream stuff uh together so there's 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 a really beautiful story um that's that's come out there was um sass who's a um a young young woman with a learning disability um and who's gay uh, and he loves brighton and Ove albion and um we matched her up with a gay woman who uh i think she's a child an athletic fan but they both play uh, love playing football as well and so sass and laura um uh, laura introduced her to her football club sass has now become part of that laura's moved away sass is still part of the the, the, the club uh it's not a learning disabled football team it's just a football team sass has just qualified as on her first sort of stage of coaching um as well and she's just she's just living the dream and that's all all really because laura sort of connected her in with this thing that was going on in her community um and then has introduced her to all her lovely friends in the football team who all support she's been to the wedding of one of the the players and everything it's just a a lovely story as well as you know uh people going out to see lo loads of great bands and and having new experiences and things and um you know, we've 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 been back to Glastonbury with thing with people as well and giving them that experience and yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's it's such a brilliant thing. I was just uh, remembering, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll edit this out. <laughs> I was just <laughs> you, you might <laughs> my, one of my my ram, rambling points, but um, I was just making the connection between you you one of your sort of first gigs that you you, you remember being like quite uh, distinct for you was seeing Radiohead, and then thinking to the uh, the gig buddies benefit that happened not long ago where Stuart Lee absolutely tore into <laughs> radio headphones you know. in watching online in the best possible way in the most Stuart Lee way yeah it, it was, was just fantastic it was awesome that was it was it was so fun it was just really um beautiful trolling of Radiohead fans um throughout the whole event I think until it got yeah. to the raffle yeah 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 there was a there was a radiohead acetate for kid a up for in the in the raffle and it was on 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 the stage and and uh Stuart Lee made a uh, a comment about um how he was this was his first gig and he was comfortable performing to like you know 60 people in a pub in um in bristol and and uh in a place he really loved and then he realized there were ten thousand radiohead fans watching <laughs> <online>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I heard today that dev's planning another one of those next year um but he's he said he's not going to do a raffle unless he can get a, a radiohead class prize in it you know and a sort of thing that that's quite that's quite a thing i you know unless you can sort of like get i don't know reanimate an old rock star or something like that i'm not sure what surpasses that that is a yeah absolutely yeah, yeah that is it was, it, it was just a brilliant it was a brilliant event actually it was it yeah. was really fun and i and i loved uh i loved the irreverence of quite a lot of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I, in the I best it, possible way. Yeah, I thought it fitted really well with our sort of ethos, really, of just you know, being being cheeky and Larry, and um, but still still getting a serious point um, across at the same at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of people that because con connected to gig buddies through tape and and uh, you know working together with the with the folks there and uh, strong connection there and. Um, and a lot of the folks who were talking about the uh, that upcoming event 
And then I was imagining some of those folks who maybe don't come across that sort of humor on a on a regular basis, yeah. <laughs> tuning tuning in to watch it. And just yeah, there was a, there's a little bit of glee glee in that. Thinking yeah, about, can't wait to until we have our next conversation. <laughs> what did you think? What did you think of that? Uh, I remember like doing a talk in Plymouth, and this guy came up to me and said he'd seen he'd seen our uh, his he. His first day at work was they were planning uh, an outing for the people they supported to go and see the heavy load film. And there was a debate in the team meeting about whether they should or not, because they'd heard there was some F words in it. (laughs) 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 And I think actually Jerry pointed out that the worst word is he's he's the only one who kind of does any of the real bad swearing. And that's because he's sort of losing it as a director at one point. When Mick moves away. (laughs) Uh, Well, look, um, thanks so much for being here today, Paul. I I just wanted to ask you actually about your music making for you now. What are you doing musically these days? I I mean, it sounds a bit sad, but not that much. But I have recently um, hooked up with an old mate um, and he's he's uh, with he's got a friend whose uh, dad owns a farm. So we've, we've just started jamming in this barn on a farm in, in, in the shadow of the downs, um, just playing together. And Lee, the drummer, um, we used to be in the school band together. Um, so I think we worked out we'd, we'd not played together in over 35 years. And we've just started to uh, just, just muck around in this, in this barn and just playing uh just playing music together so that's been really nice yeah but you saying it's just us mucking around in a barn on a farm and that's been really nice couple of years time it's going to be like fucking glastonbury isn't it yeah. it's be a huge festival <laughs> everyone's playing at loads of stages <laughs> fantastic yeah oh brilliant yeah oh thanks so much it's been a really lovely chat it has it been has. really lovely. It's been great. Yeah, thanks so much. And can, can we just finish off then with you introducing the song? Yeah, so uh, Come and Get It Now, Frank Butcher. is the, the first song that we ever recorded as a band, uh, as, uh, wrote, wrote as a band. And um, before that, we were just sort of doing cover versions of, uh, of, of songs, some of them sort of obvious ones, sort of punk songs, and other ones being like... Uh, you know can't get you out of my head by kylie and things like that um and uh simon our singer had a really uh he he had a real deep love for eastenders so i i'm not quite sure how it came about but he 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 was brilliant at one-liners and i think he just sort of said one day come and get it now frank butcher and then he was always talking about pat butcher and peggy and things like that so we just started uh kind of playing this song together and uh, when we wrote songs, they would come out in minutes, really, and that was it. They were they were formed, and so come and get it now. Frank Butcher is both a, a sort of like a an appreciation and and love of EastEnders, but done with with the true sort of Simon, slightly threatening, violent um, <laughs> sort of <laughs> undertones. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Brilliant. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Steve. Yeah. One, two, three, four!
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. (laughs) 